to come and hang out at your house with you and your dog? Because I might do that. Okay. Bring some of my rowdy pastor friends. And... Okay. <laughs> Just to add one little piece of communication for you. Uh, we want to let you know that Carrie Stannard is taking on the role of Women's Ministry Coordinator here at Crossway Fellowship, all right? And we want to thank uh, Roberta Golicki and Linda Kadike for their work over the last couple years in continuing to organize some retreats and, and events and Bible studies for the women here at Crossway. So thank you guys for doing that. Um, that ladies... So ladies, you will see some further communication and direction, all right, coming your way about the women's ministry. If you have any questions in the meantime, feel free to contact Carrie and, and let her know what's on your mind, all right? Okay, well, we are in 1 Peter, and our text today is 1 Peter chapter 2, beginning in verse 13. Peter takes us to a very popular subject, the subject of submission. He begins in verse 13, be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. Honor the emperor. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing, when mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your promises today. Promises that are true and sure because you are the one who has made them. Promises that ensure our good Promises that make eternity certain. Promises of blessing even in the midst of suffering. Help us to see with the, the eyes of faith because faith alone pleases you. And now we ask that by your word, your powerful word, your good word, that you would continue to conform us to the image of Jesus Christ. Amen. So the command here in verse 13, to be subject, is a word that actually means to arrange yourself beneath or arrange yourself under. It was a term that was often used in the context of the military to refer to soldiers arranging themselves under a commanding officer. So the word can be uh, translated submit. Submit yourselves. Subject yourselves. And this is Peter's first example of the honorable conduct he calls for back in verse 12. 
This is the first basic step in living honorably in the world that can lead to outsiders, those who are outside of the faith, to come into the faith and give God glory. It is for the Lord's sake, you see. Be subject for the Lord's sake, for his honor, for his glory, for doing something that pleases him. And if we're honest, it's one of the most difficult, isn't it? Because who likes to submit? Submitting goes against our culture. We glorify the rebel. How many movies glorify the guy who is loyal and submissive? They don't make good heroes most of the time. We glorify the nonconformist. Even in our children's programming, in kids' movies, family movies, what is often the underlying message behind the central character? You are trying to be forced into being this kind of person, but deep inside, you need to be yourself. You know who you are. Break all the molds. Break out. Whether that's their parents or their, their context or culture or whatever it is. It also goes against our American heritage. If there is a people group that prizes independence, it is Americans. And that doesn't mean there's, everything is wrong with independence. It's a great thing. But even our nation was founded on revolution. And regardless of what you think about that, it is in our American heritage to defy, to set ourselves up independently, to do anything but necessarily submit. But even more important than these two, it goes against our nature. We as human beings, I don't care what culture you live in or what your national heritage is, we as human beings from our earliest days do not like to submit. Most of us hope that our children's first words will be dada or mama. Sometimes it is no. <laughs> and if no is not the first word, it is one of the first words. No. We scream when we don't get what we want. We say no when we're told to do something we don't want to do. <laughs> it goes against our very nature to submit. So this is then God's command to us. Nobody likes to submit. But we're a new people, right? We have a new birth. We have a new hope. We're being transformed and so Peter addresses three key relationships in these passages between Christians and culture, or Christians and their society. He addresses Christians as citizens who are under civil authority, government. 
he addresses Christians who are servants or slaves under masters. And I read about those two. A few verses down from here, he will speak to wives who are under the authority of husbands in their households. We'll get to that on a different Sunday. And notice, though, what all of these have in common. First of all, each of, in each of these relationships, the believer is presented in the, uh, in the role of submission, not in the role of authority or influence. That's intentional. Peter's being very specific about certain relationships. In each of these relationships, the unbeliever is presented in the role of authority or power. So what P, who Peter is addressing are Christian citizens under a non-Christian government or civil authorities. He is addressing Christians who are household servants or slaves under unbelieving masters. That's part of the reason he doesn't give any commands here to governing authorities or to the masters themselves. It's a little different when he comes to his instructions to wives down here in chapter 3 because he will also say a word to husbands, and we'll get there in a couple weeks. But these, this is the scenario. Believers, Christians who are placed in these roles of submission, where that is required of them, under unbelievers who are in positions of authority, or power. So, Peter is addressing Christians in vulnerable positions in their society. He addresses Christians in these positions because these are the toughest situations to live out the instructions of keep your conduct honorable. If you're in a position of power and authority in your society, that's not as difficult if you're in a place that is vulnerable. And so Peter is talking to Christians who are in the most vulnerable places, the most vulnerable positions, especially when they are experiencing rejection and persecution. So when we look at Peter's instructions here, they're actually different than, say, the Apostle Paul's in the book of Ephesians, chapter 6, where children obey your parents. Parents, this is how you... you uh, parents your children, train them up. And servants or slaves, this is how you respond to masters. Masters, this is how you respond to slaves. These are different relationships. Husbands and wives, he also speaks to. Husbands, love your wives. Wives, respect, honor, submit to your husbands. These are Christian households. Peter's not talking to Christian households. Peter's talking to Christians who are in unchristian households, under unchristian civil authorities. So this is different. This stands out in the New Testament, really. Also notice this. They are all binding relationships. If you were a subject of the Roman Empire, you didn't get to just move out of the empire if you didn't like the emperor's policies. And if you did move out of the empire, you were moving into somebody else's empire. You didn't move out of the Roman Empire into a free democratic society. So that's a binding relationship. 
if you were a slave, you couldn't just resign. I don't like the way this household's run. I don't like the way my, my owner treats me. I'm going to go belong to that household. You, didn't, you couldn't do that. You couldn't even decide to not be a slave anymore. Right? There was a process by which slaves could gain their freedom, but that had to be authorized. That had to be accepted. They just didn't, couldn't do it. And marriage was a binding relationship, even if it wasn't honored as God intended in culture in general, as it is not today often. It still was a binding relationship. So in other words, all of these relationships are ones in which a Christian might find himself or herself trapped or stuck in without the ability to escape. Also notice this, Peter moves from the least personal to the most personal. He starts with everyone's under some government to those who are slaves to wives and husbands in the most intimate human relationship we know. So he moves from the least personal to the most personal. Now, like I said, today we're just gonna look at these first two because some of the instructions are different to wives and they're longer. He's, he uses more ink, okay, when he speaks to wives and husbands. But his call to submit ourselves to civil authorities as citizens and to masters as slaves, they go together and in some ways they'll overlap. Okay, so we, this morning we're going to look at how to submit for the Lord's sake. What does it mean? Be subject for the Lord's sake. How to submit for the Lord's sake. First of all, as citizens, submit comprehensively. Submit comprehensively. Be subject to every human institution, verse 13. Now, the word institution is really the word creature, and it's, it's, that word is describing or capturing how a variety of civil structures are designed and formed by humanity, all kinds of different ones. We might fashion a monarchy. That is a human institution, an absolutism. We might, as a culture, fashion a premier and a proletariat. That is a human institution. We might form a democratic republic with three branches of government. That too is a human institution. And Peter goes on to clarify here that this comprehensive submission has to be considered by us at all levels of civil authorities, whether it is the emperor or whether it is governors those who are sent by him to carry out laws, to enforce laws. And this term governor here just means all kinds of lower level rulers, officials in the government. So Peter is clarifying then that whether it's the Supreme Court or the traffic court, submit yourselves. Whether it is the president or whether it is a local city council, be subject to civil authorities in any of those cases, at all levels. Their purpose, Peter gets at here, is to punish evil and to praise good. 
So through civil government, God has designed a way to regulate evil in the world. To regulate evil. Now, Peter's not saying that all governments or all rulers accomplish this justice. That all of them do this well. But that this is the norm. This is the design. And we as God's people need to recognize God's hand and God's design in ordaining civil authorities to punish evil and to praise good, to reward those who do good. And the key here, I think, that Peter's getting at is that our culture knows it. Those who aren't Christians, who don't know God, generally speaking, they know that government exists to punish evil and to praise good. And that that brings order and safety. Talk to someone who lives in, in, in some place, in a different culture, where either there is no law or the law is totally corrupt. They're not, you won't find anarchists there. You won't find people who want no government. You want people who want protection and they want justice. We want the same things. We want justice. We want safety. And that's what governments do. Our, our society, our culture cringes at tyranny, at abusive governments that oppress their citizens. And so if Christians resist, if Christians oppose government, just to oppose government, if Christians become revolutionaries, if we claim some exemption because we are Christians, while the government in general is punishing evil and praising good, then we undermine God's glory and his purposes in the world. So we are called then to subject ourselves and to submit comprehensively. Secondly, we are to submit skillfully. We are to submit skillfully. That by doing good, and the doing good is the, the submitting to civil authorities, respecting laws of the land. By doing good, you should silence the ignorance of foolish people. So as citizens, we're to do good, we're to support civil authority and punishing good, and I'm sorry, punishing evil and praising good, and the effect, Peter says, is to silence the ignorance of foolish people. The ignorance of foolish people is referring to immoral, those who are opposed to God, those who are hostile toward his people. Those who would speak against Christians would slander them. You see, if Christians can be shown to be anti-society, if Christians can be, it can be demonstrated that Christians are anti-good, anti-safety, they're revolutionaries, they're troublemakers, they're always stirring up, then the gospel is discredited. The gospel is discredited. By doing good, by supporting civil authority, 
and subjecting ourselves, we expose those who would make those slanderous remarks as ludicrous. It makes them look ridiculous or absurd. And this actually happened early in the early days of the Roman Empire. Nero was the first emperor to unleash formal government-directed imperial persecution against Christians. And he acted so cruelly, his methods of executing Christians were so barbaric, there was so much blood loss that the Roman citizenship began to understand that Nero was, being, was glutting his own cruelty and it had nothing to do with Christians. Part of that was the faithfulness of the believers in those days to continue to be faithful, to submit to that persecution, to endure it. And in fact, that's recorded in Roman history. Suetonius, who is a Roman historian, records that very thing that the constituency, the Roman citizenship began to turn on Nero because they got so sick and so offended by his cruelty to Christians, paved the way for the gospel in early Rome, or early Christianity in the Roman Empire. So that's what Peter's saying. You silence the ignorant talk of foolish people. Okay? So submit skillfully. Thirdly, submit freely. Submit freely, verse 16. Submit as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but as servants of God. Now, in the ESV and perhaps some of your other translations, you'll see this word live. That's because there's no verb there. You've got to supply the verb from somewhere else in the sentence. It's all one sentence, and the verb is be subject. Peter's saying not live as people who are free. He's saying submit Submit yourselves as people who are free. You're free. Submission to you is not just an obligation. You have the freedom in Christ to practice submission in a way that honors him. So even if you are under an oppressive government, you are free. Exiles are free exiles. Free from sin, free from self, free from darkness. God's people, watch, here's really what Peter's getting at. God's people are not bound by the rules of self-promotion and resistance to authority. Not bound by that, you're free. Being God's servants is full and satisfying. Do it as servants of God. And don't use it as a cover-up for evil. In other words, don't try to use your Christianity or your religious convictions in the public sphere for personal gain, deception, to do things that really are wrong and subversive. That's what Peter's saying. Have integrity in this submitting freely. Fourthly, submit strategically. Submit strategically. Peter gives us four commands in verse 17, just one on top of the other. And I believe really they're to be seen in two sets of two. They have relationships to each other. 
Honor everyone, love the brotherhood. Both of these are non-authorities. Peter's getting really broad now, isn't he? Everyone. Honor everyone, not just those who are in authority, but part of this doing good, being good citizens as Christians, is showing honor, proper honor and respect to everybody. From honoring firefighters for the dangers they face to protect us, to not treating the telemarketer like they're subhuman. Okay. Honor everyone. Respect the road worker who's holding you up with a stop sign. And respect the person scanning your groceries or the person taking your order at the table at the restaurant. I used to wait tables in seminary. That was one of the things I did. I was an intern in a church. I was in taking seminary classes, and I waited tables. And I waited tables for, I don't know, three or four years okay, while I was in my, in my studies. And I can tell you this. Sunday afternoons were the worst time to be waiting tables. People coming into restaurants after church, they were the worst customers, by and large. They were cheap. They were demanding. Sometimes I even, I didn't have this happen often, but once I had someone leave a gospel track instead of a tip. That's just once. Out of four years, that's not bad. Okay. That was the worst time. What, what kind of testimony is that? No one should ever have grounds to say Christians are rude, cheap, Pushy, demanding. On the other hand, honor everyone, love the brotherhood. There's a special affection and a special love and a special being deliberate for those who are fellow believers. And I, I rejoice and I, I see this at Crossway. And I want to encourage it more. But I see this. I see a love for the brotherhood. We're not perfect. But by and large, we love each other. And I see that. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood. Then, fear God, honor the emperor. I think you can see the connection between these two, right? You fear God. Peter uses this term a few times here in his letter. He always uses this word fear in relationship to God. Never in, never in relationship, our relationship to a, an emperor or civil authority. We honor the emperor we fear God. And I think you can say that to honor the emperor well, you must fear God first. And don't confuse the two. By fearing God, Peter is establishing boundaries for honoring the civil authorities. We'll talk more about that in a minute. But Peter, that forms a boundary, doesn't it? You fear God first, then you honor the emperor who really is just, don't, and don't equate emperor with president. Emperor is whatever's at the top of your government. Okay. But Peter's point is this. Being the chosen people of God, exiles in the world, and Peter has made a point to help us understand our identity as the people of God in the world, his chosen people, a holy nation, a royal priesthood, 
as the chosen people of God, exiles in the world does not mean we are political revolutionaries. Nor do we outrank laws and civil authorities because we belong to God. So, if you are pulled over for doing 45 in a 35, you don't say to the officer, don't you recognize me? I'm I'm part of the royal priesthood. It's not going to get you very far. Even if he's a Christian and knows 1 Peter 2, verses 9 and 10. It's not going to get you very far. Establishing democracies is not the mission of the church. Nor is it making sure that a Christian becomes president or that a Mormon not become president. Now, I'm not saying we shouldn't affect policy, that we shouldn't contest injustice, that we shouldn't promote sound laws. All of that is part of doing good. And again, we'll talk more about this in a few minutes. But God calls us to submit, to be good citizens at all levels of government. Okay. What about as slaves? So submitting as slaves, we are to, verse 18, we are to submit thoroughly. We are to submit thoroughly. Slaves, servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. So masters who were unfair, who were unkind, were also to be respected and submitted to. Now this term servants is a word for household servants or slaves. And it means they were part of a, a staff, if you will, but they were owned by somebody. And some of them were Christians. Many of the believers to whom Peter is writing would have been slaves, household servants, and owned by somebody. And there were a lot of reasons someone might become a slave. It could be that they were part of a conquered people. It could be that... Uh, It could be that they were kidnapped. That happens sometimes, that they were forced into it. Sometimes people sold themselves into slavery because they had debts they couldn't afford to pay back the people that they owed. And they said, well, I guess I'll give myself and my family. And sometimes that was a healthy way to live. Instead of starving or being thrown in prison, you would be taken in, and they would say, okay, you can come be part of my household, and I'd like you to take over you know, the, four, the back 40 acres and make sure it's productive and whatever. You might. Some slaves were medical professionals. Some had what we would think of as higher-ranking or middle-class types of, of jobs, craftsmen, but they were owned by somebody. And some owners and masters were kind and wise and benevolent, and others were not. And in the Roman Empire, they had the freedom to punish or beat slaves because they owned them. That was a reality. 
And Peter is writing to Christian slaves, and he's saying, with all respect, treat them with all respect, not only the good and the gentle, but also the unjust. So a Christian slave was not to reason, now wait a second, I belong to God now. I'm an exile. I'm part of the, the holy nation. I don't have to take this. I don't have to endure this. It's one thing. I've got a brother at church. He's a slave, and his owner is totally kind, understanding, patient. And mine's not. I don't have to, I'm part of the holy nation. I don't have to put up with this. Peter's saying, no. The quality of life and the comfort levels that you are experiencing are, do not determine the path of submission. Peter's saying, subject yourselves. Submit thoroughly, even if someone's unkind, even if your owner was unjust, unfair. Number six, we'll come back to this issue of slavery. I keep saying we'll come back. That's because I got some stuff at the end to clarify, okay? Number six, submit mindfully. Submit mindfully. For it is... Uh, This is a gracious thing when, mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure, but if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. What does P mean? This is gracious. This is gracious in the sight of God. What Peter means is that this brings God's favor. This brings God's approval. Some of your English versions may have the word commendable. It's commendable in God's sight. It's a good translation, even though the word is grace. It's it's gracious. It, it, It brings God's favor. Reward. This kind of submission is praiseworthy. It's worthy of reward. Remember what Peter said in chapter 1, verse 13. Set your hope fully on the grace to be brought to you when Jesus Christ returns. What Peter's really saying here when he says, for it is a gracious thing. This is gracious in the sight of of the Lord. He is saying that as far as God is concerned, this is a God-given opportunity to earn reward to trust him in the midst of a difficult situation where you are a vulnerable Christian and know that God is heaping up reward for your faithfulness. There are going to be many who are slaves and oppressed in this life who are our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ whose reward is probably going to be far greater than many of us despite our opportunities and advantages because of their suffering in very vulnerable situations. But submit mindfully. How is it credit? What credit is it to you? See, here we go. It's gracious. It's, it's an opportunity for being faithful and, and having reward from God. What credit, though, is it if you're beaten? And he gets graphic here. This isn't even, he doesn't even use the word suffering. He's saying that as a slave, in that context, you could be beaten. And if you're beaten, 
because you disobeyed your owner, because you ran off, because you squandered his money, whatever it was, by not doing good, what credit is that? That doesn't get you reward. It's only when you, if you're suffering, if you are beaten because you have done good. So, to illustrate it this way, it's one thing if I work for an employer and I share the gospel and I draw hostility and I'm fired for sharing the gospel or for telling the truth, for maintaining integrity instead of bending the rules and being dishonest. It's a different thing if I get fired because I show up late every day or consistently. Is God pleased with that? Does that have anything to do with being a Christian? It has to do with being lazy or irresponsible. That's what Peter's saying. He's saying, don't, don't try to fudge and say, oh, yep, I, I, you know, I've, I've been beaten, I'm suffering, when really you're, you're in trouble because you've been lazy or irresponsible, rebellious. Okay. What credit is to you? It's not. But all of this is gracious in God's sight when you are mindful of God, when you do good. What does he mean? He means when you are mindful of God's presence and purpose in this very hard situation. When you do good because you are aware of God's approval. When you are mindful, understanding that God's justice will not fail. That eventually God will act justly. God will vindicate you. God will save, deliver. This is what it means. It's another way of saying for the Lord's sake. So be subject for the Lord's sake. When you are mindful of God. So submit mindfully. Number seven, and lastly, submit steadfastly. Submit steadfastly. Verses 19 and 20, again, look at these words. When one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. When you do good and suffer for it and you endure. Word endure means to bear up under. Bear up under unjust suffering. How can we do that? Only by faith. Only by faith. Believe God. Again, chapter one, verse 13. Set your hope, your confidence fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. When you bear up, when you endure with steadfastness under injustice, unjust suffering and sorrow, know that God is heaping reward up to your account and that he will be just. Peter is really applying here in a very concrete situation what he said back in chapter 1, verses 6 and 7, in this you rejoice, knowing that you have a, an eternal inheritance, a new birth, eternal inheritance. You rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. That's what he's saying. That part of this enduring and suffering grievous trials 
is being in submission in tough places, in tough ways. Okay. Now, let's get to some questions because there are some challenges. How do we submit for the Lord's sake? There's some challenges for us in applying Peter's instructions. First of all, how do we submit to every institution when we live in a democracy or de democratic republic? If you want to start getting technical, okay. How do we submit? So, Because Peter is giving these instructions to Christians who live under a, an absolutism, an absolute kind of government. The emperor was considered God. He was worshipped. How, how, do, how do we apply this when we live in a country that its highest law gives us certain freedoms to challenge, criticize civil authorities? I think that has to be taken into account because I don't think the apostles, for all of the revelation that they received and communicate to us, I don't think the apostles ever envisioned a nation like the United States, quite frankly. So how is it then that we apply it? And I think we have to take this into account that we live in a government that doesn't have a king or an absolute authority or monarch. We live under a document, a constitution, that ensures certain freedoms of speech, of religion, and all of the others. This ensures to us, and in fact, you might even say we live in a system that encourages or requires us at times to hold our civil authorities, our emperors and governors accountable. The citizens of this country are responsible to hold civil authorities accountable. So how do we apply it then? Affect laws. Vote accordingly. Think biblically about why you're voting and what the issues are, what God says about the issues and what the priorities are. I think we can voice criticism. I think that we can, we can voice also approval for laws and officials, certain laws and officials, and we can criticize certain laws and officials. We have the freedom to do that. And we can do that in a rancorous spirit, or we can do that in an appropriate way as peaceful citizens. We are not to be militant. Our laws don't give us freedoms to blow up buildings or to attack government officials because they've ruined our lives or are doing things that we even know are immoral. We don't have those freedoms. And I think we have a responsibility even to protect the freedom that we have to oppose injustice. Again, these aren't absolute freedoms. We can't harm, we can't destroy. And we don't want to. We shouldn't want to. We don't wish that. And when we can't affect change, we're to submit. We're to subject ourselves. Number two, how can Peter condone slavery? And how can we apply Peter's command to slaves when we don't have slavery? 
Remember that the apostles are writing within a certain cultural framework. And their mission as apostles, Jesus has not commissioned them to overturn social structures or political structures. That is not the gospel. Because the gospel transcends all of those things, do you understand? The gospel views our political systems and our social institutions as something that have already been written off and are passing away. We are already in the last days, and it feels like a long time to us, thousands of years, at least a couple thousand, right? But these are the last days, and God has already pronounced the end. And he has already said that all these things are passing away. That's why in 1 Corinthians 7, and I'm not going to turn there. I don't have the verses up front here. 1 Corinthians 7, Paul writes and he says, remain as you are. Don't look. If you've become a Christian and you find yourself slavery, he says some things to people who are engaged and thinking about being married, and he says some things to those who find themselves bound in slavery. He says, if you're a slave, so what? What about that? So what? This world is passing away. Be content. For anyone who's in slavery here is really, in reality, free in Christ. And anyone who's a freedman, a non-slave, by our social reckoning, is a slave to Christ. He isn't his own authority either. So what? Now, if you can get your freedom, he says this in 1 Corinthians 7, if you can gain your freedom, do so. It's okay to make life smoother. But if you can't, don't worry about it. Don't worry about it. That doesn't mean we condone slavery. Our culture, our world is better for not having slavery. Okay. Especially a slavery that is racially based, which is what ours was. In the Roman Empire, it wasn't racially based. It didn't have to do with race. It might have had to do with nation, people groups that were conquered by Rome, but it didn't have anything to do with ethnicity or race. In fact, there were, there were Romans who were slaves because they owed people money. But how, so Peter isn't condoning slavery, but Peter isn't trying to overturn it. He recognizes it as a reality. And if you're a Christian, you're a slave, subject yourself. How can we apply Peter's command then since we don't have slavery? Well, most people try to draw a parallel with employment. And there's some principles that carry across. But the, the breakdown is, as an employee, that's not a binding relationship. You can quit. You can resign. You can go find another job. So it's not quite the same. Uh, an employer doesn't have the power over you like a master did or an owner. On the other hand, as I said, there are principles that carry across that apply to being a good employee, especially honor everyone, right? Testimony. And we could say that this then uh, applies to students in classrooms who are under professors who are hostile to the Christian faith. How do you navigate that? You might have to take an F. You might have to get railed on in class. 
because you've responded and said, no, that's, that's not true or that's not right. What about the military? That's pretty close to slavery, right? But you, you're expected to obey orders. That's a different relationship than being an employee or being a student in a classroom even. A Christian soldier doesn't get to say, you know what, I have a religious objection to having a commanding officer who's a jerk. Sorry, I just, I can't do that. I need a safe place, okay, from my jerk commanding officer. You don't get to do that in the military, (laughs) okay? What does this say to soldiers? You're going to have some unjust, unfair COs. And you better submit to them as a Christian. You subject yourselves to them. What about Christians in communist governments who were told, you're going to work in a factory. We don't care anything about your desires, your, your goals or dreams. You're working in a factory. And you, you're going to be an athlete. And you, you're going to do this. You're going to work for the government. You, you're going to be a soldier. What about our, our fellow believers in China? What do they do with 1 Peter chapter 2? What about believers in closed Muslim cultures and countries? We're not so far from this. We're kind of an anomaly, the U.S. is. And then God has ordained that. God has ordained that. It's not a complaint or criticism. God has ordained that. But we need to see Christianity and brothers and sisters in Christ globally don't have a lot of those. And I think we need to pray for them accordingly because they live in more vulnerable positions like the Christians to whom Peter's writing. Lastly, are there exceptions to the command, be subject? You've been waiting for this. Don't tell me you haven't already thought, but what about this case? And But what if the commanding officer tells me to do something that's immoral? Or what if, right? And I think the question itself says something about us. We immediately want to jump to the, yeah, but what if about this? The exception. The answer to the question, of course, is yes. Are there exceptions? Yes. If a civil or domestic authority requires you to violate God's will or moral commands, you must disobey. You must disobey. It's not unclear. And Peter gives some hints of that in this text, but I want to give you two examples from Scripture of non-submission. Non-submission. The first is Daniel, the prophet Daniel. Daniel chapter 6, because of God's blessing, Daniel, who is what in Babylon? An exile. (laughs) Daniel is in exile. He's in Babylon. And even though Daniel is righteous, there is never anything negative in all of the scriptures said about Daniel. Never a fault. We see it with many other, Abraham, Jacob, Isaac, Jacob. We, you can go through the scriptures, you can see where they were discouraged, they failed. What it, David, never about Daniel, Nothing. Daniel's in exile. He has risen in power and prestige, first under Nebuchadnezzar, but then under King Darius. 
And he has risen so far that all of his fellow officials, out of jealousy, plot to frame him, to get him out of the way. And so they manipulate the king into making prayer illegal, prayer to anybody but him. So this is now, and they manipulate him into signing the law into effect as a capital offense. So anyone who is caught praying to anybody other than King Darius is to be executed. And they've done this because they know Daniel's unyielding commitment to God and his practice of prayer. Daniel chapter 6, beginning in verse 10. When Daniel knew, catch that, don't miss it. When Daniel knew that the document, that's the law, had been signed, he went to his house where he had windows in his upper chamber open toward Jerusalem. There was nothing sacred about praying in that direction. It was for Daniel an ongoing reminder of God's promise to deliver them, to take them out of exile. He had his windows in his upper chamber open toward Jerusalem. He got down on his knees three times a day and prayed and gave thanks before his God as he had done previously. The text reads as such as that at the moment that Daniel hears that the law has been signed, he immediately goes to his house and disobeys it. He prays, just as he always has. Now, the plotters catch him praying, which was their point. And they come before the king and they force the king to throw Daniel into the lion's den. And for those of you who have ever been to a Sunday school class, probably you know this story. Daniel's thrown down in the lion's den among ravenously hungry, vicious lions, and an angel shows up and closes all their mouths. And Daniel's delivered, and he sits down there. Darius has been manipulated and tricked into this against his will. He's concerned about Daniel. In fact, he throws Daniel into the den saying, boy, I hope your God will save you. I hope he delivers you. I like you, Daniel. And so Darius comes and looks down in the pen and says, Daniel? Yep. Still here, right? An angel. The Lord has sent an angel. We're not going anywhere. And Darius says, okay, no law overcomes this kind of intervention. Daniel chapter 6, verse 23. Then the king was exceedingly glad and commanded that Daniel be taken up out of the den. So Daniel was taken up out of the den, and no kind of harm was found on him because he had trusted in his God. And the king commanded, and those men who had maliciously accused Daniel were brought and cast into the den of lions. They, their children, and their wives. And before they reached the bottom of the den, the lions overpowered them and broke all their bones in pieces. Then King Darius wrote to all the peoples, nations, and languages that dwell in all the earth. This was an empire. Peace be multiplied to you. I make a decree that in all my royal dominion, people are to tremble and fear before the God of Daniel, for he is the living God. Enduring forever, his kingdom shall never be destroyed, and his 
uh, dominion shall be to the end. He delivers and rescues. He works signs and wonders in heaven and on the earth. He who has saved Daniel from the power of the lions. Well, this is a pretty dramatic example of silencing the ignorance of foolish people, isn't it? But this is what Daniel's submission has done. Daniel doesn't resist the arrest. He doesn't say, I'm the most important person in this kingdom. I have gained you more wealth and prestige than you could have ever done on your own. Rise up, people of, of God, in the, nation, in the city of Babylon. He doesn't do that. He trusts God, submits himself, and goes into the lion's den. And we see how God exalts himself through his exiles. So that's Daniel. And if you want to know more about Daniel and the book of Daniel, Pastor Scott preached on Daniel a couple years ago. All those sermons are still online. You can go and listen to them. I encourage you to do that. Listen about the story of Daniel because you can look at Daniel as the model exile of how to live, how to be faithful when you're in exile as God's people. About the New Testament, so we've got Daniel... What about Peter himself? Peter who writes this letter. We see in Acts chapter 4, Peter and John. Peter has healed the blind man at the temple gates. He is brought in before the Jewish leadership. He confronts them with the gospel. He confronts them for their guilt in crucifying Jesus. He puts them in a political dilemma because all the people are rallying around the apostles. And so their conclusion in chapter 4, verse 18... So they called them and charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered them, Whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. For we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. Hmm. Subject yourselves. The Jewish Sanhedrin, they weren't the Roman government, but they exercised authority. They were a level of civil authorities because they were... uh, They were condoned, affirmed by the Roman government to direct these kinds of affairs among the Jewish people, to judge these kinds of things. In fact, the Romans counted on them to help keep the Jews in line. So they're authorities. And what does Peter say? He doesn't say, you are are in rebellion. I have the authority here. I'm the apostle. I'm the one who walked with Jesus. No, he says, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. That is subjecting himself to their authority and at the same time saying, I'm going to do what God says instead of what you're commanding me to do. Whether it's right in the sight of God. So they release them and they keep on preaching the gospel. And the gospel is so powerful, the apostles become so popular because they are healing so many people. Let me just pause right here. If there are kids out here, I'm going long, and that's okay. But if there are kids out here, Abby, bring them in. Let them come in. They don't need to stand out in the hallway and be quiet, okay? Just, shh, oh my gosh, it's like an hour. He's just going and going. Be quiet, kids. I'm going to get some goldfish. Okay, just bring them on in. Okay. But the apostles are becoming so popular because they're healing people. 
that the Jewish leaders become jealous. Sound familiar? It's like the officials in Babylon. They become jealous and they arrest them. They throw them in prison and an angel miraculously frees them and instructs them contrary to the human authorities. In chapter 5, verse 25, go and stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life. So the angel is saying, disobey the civil authorities and you go preach the gospel. So the Jewish leaders are shocked by their escape. They come the next morning and the guards are still outside. The guards guarding, the somehow the angel gets them out of prison without the guards. It freezes them or something. And they don't even know that they're gone. They come and find empty cells. And like, we have no idea. They're shocked. And while they're scratching their heads, someone reports, Acts 5.25, someone came and told them, look, the men whom you put in prison are standing in the temple and teaching the people. So they discreetly this time arrest them again. Chapter 5, verse 27. And when they had brought them, they set them before the council, and the high priest questioned them, saying, We strictly charged you to not to teach in this name, yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. Not only that, but you're dragging us down. But Peter and the apostles answered, We must obey God rather than men. There you go. Are there exceptions? Yes. After debating what to do, the Jewish leadership, verse 40, and they had called in the apostles, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. I don't think they would have let them go. They would have executed them had the, the mindset of the populace allowed them to. They couldn't do it, though. They knew they would be lynched if they did it. So they just beat them. They used their authority. They exercised their authority to beat them, charge them not to speak in the name of Jesus, and let them go. Then they left the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that the Christ is Jesus. Again, civil disobedience. The apostle Peter had some experience with it. So here's Peter, this very apostle who's writing to us and saying, subject yourselves. Submit. And first Peter, Peter doesn't say it explicitly about these exemptions or exceptions, but he does implicitly, both for citizens and slaves. Again, look at verse 13. Be subject for the Lord's sake. It's hard to imagine that Peter's saying submit to an immoral command for the Lord's sake. You can't do that. And again in verse 17, fear God. That puts boundaries. Verses 19 and 20, be mindful of God. Do good. You can't be mindful of God, especially not possible, to suffer for doing good if that good is always in submission to the authorities. Do you see the very situation Peter is presenting is you've done good and you're suffering for it. So by doing good, they had to have done something to violate a master's order, an owner's command, whatever it was, but because you did good and you're now suffering for it. That in itself implies an exception. 
Because you can't suffer for doing good unless doing good somehow violates, right? But let's be careful not to jump to the exceptions too quickly. Because Peter's point here is if you're going to be faithful, if we at Crossway Fellowship are going to be faithful in the gospel, in mission, then generally, broadly, day to day, in the mundane things, we need to not react in resistance and hostility 